Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Oslo in Norway, from an amazing hotel called The Thief, a very interesting derivation of how it got its name, right here on the waterfront in Norway. Speaking of being here, uh, my next guest came here for money, stayed for love, but in the process uh, became the writer and the editor of two books, uh, Life in Norway and the the new book, uh, Moon Norway, published both by Moon Publishing. Uh, David Nichol, how are you, sir? Very good. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here and great to be back here at The Thief as well. I know. I mean, I, you know, you heard me talk about the, the, the hotel when I came in. I mean, I have to say they have they really put some thought into this hotel. It's a brand new hotel, relatively speaking. It's cutting edge design, very modern, an art hotel. I mean, they are terrifically dedicated to art and interesting artists, very idiosyncratic artists. I mean, you know, it's the kind of art that gets you talking. You know, even if you're in the elevator, there's there's a sort of like a, a very interesting image of a woman in the elevator. Her earrings kind of shake and she blinks at you. It's, it's like, hello. I mean, it's not just your typical elevator ride either. Sure. it's It was a real wake-up call to the Oslo hotel scene when this place opened. Uh, it was only a few years ago before that time. It was very traditional, very Scandinavian. 
uh, very, very Spartan. Spartan. Spartan, lots of wood, lots of bronze everywhere. This has just completely transformed. And there's a few other hotels like this around Norway now. It's been a real trendsetter. I mean, what's really changed in the hotel scene in, in, in Scandinavia, because this also applies to Copenhagen and Stockholm, is that for years, if I, if I was looking for a, what would be considered a really great hotel, the facilities were still Spartan. The beds were still hard, uh, twin beds. I mean, it was very utilitarian. It wasn't really focused on what we would desc to, uh, describe as luxury or even thoughtful. Sure thing. And this is absolutely the top luxury hotel in Norway. I pick it out in the Moon Guide as my top pick for Oslo. Uh, the one downside, of course, is the price. It's uh, a lot more expensive than your typical chain hotel. But I think in a place like this, you really do get what you pay for. You know, uh, with all due respect to Norway, Norway is a lot more expensive than what we're used to. That's very true. You know this being an expat. Um, I know this every time I come to Norway. Uh, and you know, what you look at when you when you look at any location is you don't just look at the cost of getting there or even the cost of the hotel. It's literally the cost of being there based on local goods and services. What does a tube of toothpaste cost? What does a Big Mac cost if you're so inclined? And I hope you're not. But I mean, what does a uh, taxi ride cost? And that's really what you're going to end up paying over and above everything else. And if you don't budget accordingly, you get in trouble. Now, having said that, it doesn't keep me from coming to Norway because it's such a cool place. And it shouldn't keep you from coming to Norway. Um, visiting Norway is a lot more expensive than living here, that's for sure, with the cost of hotels, the cost of food, and the cost of travel. But the great thing about Norway is the outdoors. That's what really sells Norway, is the mountains, the fjords, the northern lights in the winter. And all of this is free. It's accessible. You can go hiking for days at a time, and, and it, it costs very little. And this is how the Norwegians live. So if you come to Norway and expect to live or, or have a standard holiday, you will be breaking the bank. But if you come to Norway for a typical Scandinavian experience, then you can actually visit Norway on a budget. It, it is possible. It is. And, and the thing, you, you mentioned it. Uh, even on a beautiful summer day, like we're having now, uh, but it doesn't even have to be a beautiful summer day. You just dress appropriately, and you're still going to be outside. I mean, I've come to Norway in, you know, January, February, and March, and, you know, it's not light a lot. You know, it's, it's, you know, you don't get that many hours of daylight, but you still are outside. Absolutely. The Norwegians have a saying, there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothes. And <laughs> that is a, a lifestyle choice, I suppose. Um, any time of year, rain or shine, Norwegians are out in the mountains. And when you do that, you just have this new appreciation for nature, I suppose. And now, then, now, you've written just these two guidebooks right now. You've only been here since 2011. That's so, right. So these books are not just written by an expert. You had to have your own voyage of discovery. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I actually lived in Oslo a couple of years. I now call Trondheim my home. It's about six hours north of here. Um, but I spent my first few years traveling the country. I, I've been, as most Norwegians tell me, I've been to more of Norway than they have. Uh, so the, the thought of taking on the, the guidebook project was, was fantastic. Um, and I obviously had to fill in the gaps. And right now I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I'm traveling the country. I've just actually come back from Finnmark, which is Norway's northernmost county. This is way north of the Arctic Circle. If you draw a line across to, to uh, North America, you're talking the, the very northern lakes of Canada. Uh, it's just been 31 degrees there, which is the high 80s, I think, in Fahrenheit, yeah. which is almost unheard, unheard of. of. Yeah, it, it's been an absolutely well, spectacular. Well, in Finland, summer. really, uh, the, the, the thermometer even topped 100. I mean, it's, it's unheard of. I mean, for those people who don't believe in global warming, welcome to Scandinavia with thermometers hitting 
80 plus. Yeah, and we're getting a lot more stormy weather in the uh, autumn as well. And the winters. Because the water gets warmer. Exactly. And the winters are getting colder. So it's not just about the world heating up. The weather is changing. And we're seeing that here in Scandinavia for sure. However, in the summer, not a bad place to be. <laughs> Certainly not. You know, the thing is, Peter, most Norwegians take the whole month of July off and they go to Spain or they go to Greece or Turkey or somewhere like that. I like to stay in Trondheim in July because it is without doubt the best time of year to be there. It's glorious sunshine all month and there's no locals around at all. So you, you have places to yourselves. It's a, it's a wonderful time to visit. When you first came to Norway, you first came to Oslo, I believe, mm. what was the biggest surprise for you? That's a really interesting question. Oslo, I mean, I'm coming from England and England has a lot in common with Norway. There's a lot of shared history with uh, the Vikings and so on. Um, I'd say it was same but different. The, the cost of living was a major shock, of course. But once you get over that hurdle, I think it's the, the cleanliness, the healthiness of the everyday lifestyle. Um, you know, Norwegians aren't sitting in pubs all evening drinking beer. Uh, they're, they're not spending all their money going out all the time on, on food, on cinema. They're, they're enjoying experiences. And I think that has, embracing that concept has really almost changed my life, I think, in the last seven years. And you, you mentioned food. I remember when I first came to Norway about, God, 38 years ago, uh, the food was like herring and more herring and maybe some additional herring. I had breakfast here at the hotel this morning, and it was one. It was it was an amazing experience for me. Breakfast at a hotel. I mean, really, as a buffet, the smoked salmon is in my top five list of best smoked salmon I've ever had in my life, uh, because of the way it was cured, the way it was smoked. Uh, it wasn't just you know your typical spread. Um, the bread, there were eighteen different varieties of bread offered. Uh, half of them gluten-free. Um, they were giving us, you know, organic smoothies and all sorts of fruit drinks that were organic as well. I mean, but completely curated fruit drinks, if you will. I hate to use that word, but they did. I mean, that's really changed here. It really has. Um, anywhere you stay in Norway, you tend to get this breakfast buffet. It's not as lavish as here as the th at The Thief, that's for sure. But um, even the smaller hotels, you'll get two or three different kinds of salmon, for example, and pro probably some mackerel as well. But then when it comes to eating lunch, eating dinner, the cuisine has definitely transformed from salted meats, dried fish, very traditional preserve, uh, preserved meats and fish, through to this, uh, I think they call it New Nordic cuisine, which I'm sure you'll, you'll talk about more on the show. Yeah, there's been a real international influx in Oslo over the last, let's say, 10 years. The, the percentage of the city that was not born in Norway is, is higher than ever before, and that's reflected in the cuisine. Uh, there is a new uh, street food dynamic here in the city, and it's not just food trucks. There's also a, a place called Vipa, which is a former warehouse by the waterfront, which is full of uh, international uh, food stalls run by relatively recent immigrants. And it's actually not just a, a center for food, it's a social project. So it's designed to help uh, integrate new immigrants into Scandinavian lifestyle. And you how, know what? How cool is that? The locals have taken it like taken to it like ducks to water. They really have. Um, and that has helped the street food scene develop elsewhere in the city as well. Although last night walking around the harbor, I couldn't go 20 feet without hitting an ice cream stand. 
that's only at uh, this time of year. I know. To be I'm, fair. No kidding. But uh, but you can smell the waffles being cooked. Oh my god! You can. And have you come across the brown cheese yet? Maybe on the breakfast buffet this morning. Yes. Or what did you think of that? Not bad. Not bad. I mean, look. I really got scared when I saw breakfast today because I was. I wish I was hungrier. It was like so amazing. I mean, I hadn't seen one of those in a, those kinds of. It wasn't really a smorgasbord, but it was. A, it was a pretty big layout of of available food. I'm not a meat eater, but they had eight different kinds of meat. Uh, they had three different kinds of eggs. They had. I mean, this is not the Norway I remember. No, but this is a very international hotel, of course. Oh, sure. and, and they do cater to all sorts of people. But it all sort of has this Scandinavian twist to it, which yeah, is really nice. It does. Well, let's talk about outside of Oslo. Sure. Right? Because using Oslo as a hub, I mean, the fjords, of course. Yeah. The number one reason that people come to Norway, uh, Visit Norway, the tourist authority, did a survey recently, and the fjords was out in front as to the, the, the main reason that people Have you come done the there. mailboat? I have not actually. No, oh, my, I, I can't wait to do it. I mean, that is cool because you know, that's the only way they get their mail. I mean, yeah. it's by boat. Everything's delivered by boat. Yeah. Look, if you come to Norway, you have to get out on the water. That's that's the thing. But you don't even have to leave Oslo to do it. Right out, right outside the hotel here, there's ferries over to the islands in the fjords. So and they leave like every 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, even if you're staying in the city, you don't have time to get over to Bergen. You yeah, can if you're looking for if you're looking for a great day trip, uh, you know, just jump on the ferry. What a half an hour, forty five minutes later, you are there, um, and it's a great way to spend the day. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's one of the biggest changes for me. Is as I say, spending time outdoors, whether that's on the water or up in the mountains all right now here's a surprise for me because we all live in a world of stereotypes and imaging that you know we can't shake beaches in norway absolutely who knew this is the big secret which i guess we're now revealing it's not so much of a secret anymore (laughs) um and it's not just beaches this is beaches in the arctic this is north of the arctic circle we have some of the best beaches i've ever been to um, the thing is, these are not beaches you go to with your family to build sandcastles and paddle in the water. The, it, the water is freezing cold even in the summer, but they are some of the most stunning visual places you could possibly see in Norway. Some of them you have to hike to, so there's no road access. So maybe you spend two hours climbing over the mountain, and there it is, this this just stunning white beach, crystal And you're clear the only one on waters, it. And you're the only one on it in the height of summer. Um, it is a real surprise to people. Okay, tell the truth. Did you go in the water? I have tried. Um, <laughs> you know, you, 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 you sort of roll up your trouser leg and dip your toe in. Oh, and, no, no. I said, did you go it. in the water? <laughs> uh, the answer to that is, of course, no. Um, but I do, on the very odd occasion, go in the fjords in the summer. Um, it, it is not as cold as perhaps you would think. I will tell you this. A couple of summers ago, I did this, the uh, Stockholm Archipelago which is, you know, 24,000 islands. Oh, it's incredible. And in the summer, and we did it on an old converted tugboat, and, uh, you know, every little house is painted red, and and, and the smoked fish is unbelievable, and the mussels, it's just, and 18 different kinds of herring and, and different kinds of sauce. And everybody said the water was cold. And I said, I don't care, I'm going in. I went in. They were right. However, I wasn't the only one who went in, there are a lot of other Swedes in the water with me because that's the only time of the year they can even try to go in. Absolutely. And you know what? I'm still here to tell the story. I had a great time. It's supposed to be good for the soul. I don't know about that. Except you only put your feet in. <laughs> Next time you got to jump in, David, what's the matter with you? I'll give it a go. All right. So we, the beaches are a big surprise. Not to mention the fact they are accessible for those who, are, who really want to try. And they're empty. 
right? They're yours. Absolutely. I mean, I love a. This is going to sound so corny, but it's true. I love a beach that if you're looking for footprints in the sand, just look behind you because you're the one who made them. Yeah, absolutely. The, these beaches are. They're not just about you know appreciating the view. They're they're great places to see the northern lights from. A lot of them are north facing. They're also world famous actually for surfing, which was a big surprise for me. Surfers come from Australia as far away. I mean, that, you can't really get further away from Norway than that just to go surfing on these beaches in in the Arctic. Amazing. expat parade today on this show uh, and they all come for different reasons some came because their husbands got a job some came accidentally uh, my next guest sort of like met his wife at a hostel in Brazil of course that explains why he's what he's living in, in Oslo for but he's an American expat and founder of Zero to Travel and the co-founder of Location Indie from Philadelphia Jason Moore how are you thank you for having me it's yeah. an honor so two and a half years here with your new Norwegian wife yeah relatively new we got married in July June, I shouldn't screw up this date. That would be bad. June 2014. And uh, since then, I've been here for the most part. And I'm officially here now, having gotten permission to stay and a family immigration visa and all that. So you know, I never knew that I would live in Norway, of course, when you're born outside of Philadelphia. You don't know later in life you're going to end up living in this random country that you'd never even visited before. But I'm loving it. And, I mean, there are a lot to be said for, for accidents. Uh, this is one of them. It was a pleasant surprise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but let me ask you this as an American, what was the biggest shock for you in terms of immersing yourself in this culture? I think it was, first of all, just moving to a city because I was living in Boulder, Colorado before I came here. And that's for so a small town. Yeah, and a little energy level there. Yeah, yeah. kind of a laid back vibe. And yeah. one big thing that Oslo has going for it is, and this is something a lot of people talk about, is all of the nature opportunities around the city that are very close by. So you can take a Tebana, for example, out to Songsvan and swim in a beautiful lake that's surrounded by a pristine green forest. And there are all these opportunities near the city, which is one thing I loved about Boulder, but I had never really lived the city life. You grew up in Manhattan, so yeah. that's your that's your bread and butter. You know that existence, and I uh, I didn't have much experience with that, so it took me some time to get used to that and also the Norwegian culture. And I think, as many people know, unfortunately, Scandinavians are often recognized as being cold. I'm using air quotes there. Yeah, yeah. Cold people, right? Cold weather, maybe cold people, but I found that— See, I, see, I, would, I would say not cold, maybe aloof. Aloof. Is a yeah. great word. Yeah. And I I'm mean, until you actually engage in a conversation. Absolutely. And then watch out. Yeah. Or if you, you know, get the Norwegians a couple beers and get into a party atmosphere, then things really. Oh, a <laughs> beer driven up. conversation. Okay. A fine. beer driven yeah. conversation, yeah. even better. But I was talking to my da uh, my friend David about this, who runs a blog all about life in Norway. And he wrote an article about politeness in Norway. And I thought this was very interesting because the aloofness that you refer to is not necessarily them being impolite, but it's their version of being polite. So they don't want to bother you. They don't want to bother 
each other. So for them to do something we would do in America where we would be standing in a line and well, we would turn around and talk sure. to somebody and kind of have those interactions. They don't do that here because they don't see that as being polite. Right. So, But we see that as maybe being impolite or aloof. Yeah, because the traditional nature of an American is to impose. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, we just, we're chatty people yeah. and we talk and it's just not that way here. So that really opened a door to me to realize, okay, this is this is just a different culture and I just have to get used to, to being in it. And how you doing? I'm doing well and it's been a lot better since I've learned the language. At least I can have confidently a decent dialogue in Norwegian. That's part of the immigration process. I actually had to take 550 hours of Norwegian language lessons. And Whoa. Yeah. You had to prove yourself, boy. It's pretty intense. I tell you, when I was sitting in that class, I was thinking, what have I gotten myself into? Okay, I married a Norwegian. I'm here for love. We have a child now and we just had our second. But Now, you know uh, what this is called? It's called back to school. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was shocking. And it was really interesting as well because I'm in school alongside uh, of other immigrants who some have come here for reasons that their country, for example, is is in a war and they had to escape uh, Syrian refugees. And, you know, I just felt privileged and lucky to be here because I'm here by choice. I yeah. get to be here and learn a language and Norway pays for that as me being a family immigrant. But then you, I'm sitting right next to somebody who would love to be home, but they're from a war-torn country and they can't be here. So it was a very interesting, uh, they can't be there. So it's a very interesting experience to be alongside those people. All right. Folks. So how is your Norwegian? Uh, they Which means it's coming along essentially. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So pronounce for me where is the bathroom? Vurabada. Oh, don't ask me. I don't know. <laughs> I just want to see if you got the basics down here. I got the basics down. Okay, good. Usually I just sneak into the bathroom, though. I don't ask anyone. Okay, fine. <laughs> well, what you will find here, even though they want you to speak Norwegian, is how many people speak English. They all speak English, yeah. and they all have this feeling that they don't speak it well, which is kind of funny because anytime they're speaking, they, they say, oh, my English is not so great. And yes, it is. It's pretty much perfect. So they all lack this confidence in, in English, which I can relate to speaking in Norwegian because yeah. they compliment me the same way. And I come back to them saying, well, I don't feel very confident in it. But if you come to Norway to visit, just learn a few words or phrases. Because if you get beyond Tusentak or the, the basic phrases, you will get complimented by Norwegians. And they will embrace you immediately just because nobody takes the effort because they all do speak English so right. well. So the best way to get to a Norwegian is to speak Norwegian in a way that they don't. I had no idea. Yeah. Isn't that true with most countries? Yeah. I've just learned a few... Phrases. But you see, that's you know that that's where I get angry at my fellow Americans because they think the French are are cold and rude, and they're really not. Yeah. And if you just try your basic high school French, <laughs> they will embrace you. Yeah. They get it. They you're trying. You're building a bridge through language, and there's no better way to connect with people in my experience. When your friends come to visit you now, you Philadelphia rebel, or every <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, what's the biggest surprise to them about Norway? I think some people can be a little surprised by the weather at first, and they're a little panicky when they're when they're packing. Well, what should I bring? I, I, they imagine we're going to be dog sledding or something like that, and it's not always like that. As you can see, it's a beautiful sunny day yeah. right now. And you know, for my family, most of them hadn't been to Europe prior to visiting me here, and this so was their you first trip their to excuse. Europe. Yeah, so everything was new to them, and I think uh, it would be a better question for them. But it just seemed to. Uh, they just seem to be immersed in the sort of laid-back vibe that, that there is here pretty quickly. And you coming from the East Coast, you know it's it's kind of a fast-paced yeah. place. And then you come back here. I don't know how you're feeling about it, but you it's, it's laid-back. It's almost got that beach town 
vibe, but it's a city, and the regions are just kind of level and laid-back people. So uh, it makes everybody else that comes here a little more that way. I and think. are you now a level and laid-back American <laughs> expat? I try to keep my East Coast edge a little bit. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. Everywhere you walk, and by the way, Oslo is such a walking city. I love walking. Uh, we, as you know, we sailed in on the Azamara Pursuit, and then you just walk right around the harbor, and as you do this big sort of a U, on the way over here, as a matter of fact, to the hotel, you pass a museum, a new museum, a rebuilding museum, a, new, a museum that's about to open, and my next guest with a museum that's celebrating its 125th year. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Uh, it's basically the uh, the Museum of, of Norwegian Cultural History. My guest, uh, Paul Mork. How are you, sir? I'm fine, thanks. 125 years, cultural history, You've hung in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we, uh, by the foundation of the museum in uh, 1894, uh, the idea was to, to establish a museum for Norwegian culture to show how Norwegians have lived throughout the ages. You know, it's, it's interesting because we can define culture in so many ways. It's not just music and art. It's, it's engineering. It's lifestyle. Um, you know, one of the th and it's design, uh, and you know, Norwegian design has always been. Uh, I've always been attracted to it. But even today, when people start talking about environmentally responsible buildings, and they put grass on the roof, you guys have been putting grass on the roof, yeah, for, we, for hundreds of years. Yeah, well, for thousands of years, yeah. we did the. We have done it since the Viking ages. That's right. And, but you, you already knew the secret. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gives great insulation for the for the houses. Right, the log buildings with the grass on the roofs. Yeah. That's that's right. That's that's what you find in our museum. Well, let's talk about what else we find in your museum, because every museum to be successful has to tell a story. Yeah, that's right. Right. What is the story that you're telling that is different from any other museum? What we are talk, uh, telling is the story of uh, how people have lived in, in Norway throughout the ages. And you refer to, to design and, and art. And that was the idea of our founder. He was traveling around on a duty for the uh, for an art uh, museum, uh, collecting uh, folk art, and he saw that everyday utensils were thrown away, and he thought, that has to be taken care of as well. So, he founded a museum, and this museum takes care of everything you, you use, every, everything. All, all the stuff that Norwegians have brought around for uh, centuries, we try to, to take care of and, and to present in a museum. And from a physical perspective, you're not just one building, you're a park. That's right, because people live in, in houses, so we needed to collect houses as well. So Difficult to do if you don't have a park. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so we have a huge area, and we have 160 buildings altogether. Well, let's, let's, let's put that in perspective. Think about that, everybody. It's a museum with 160 buildings. Yeah, that's right. Of course, some of the buildings are pretty... Uh, Norwegian houses uh, in the old ages weren't that big. Doesn't matter. It's still <laughs> a pretty sizable number. It is. And, uh, of course, this idea of, collect, uh, of moving houses, it's very old in Norway because the, uh, we build log buildings. And a the log, log buildings like with the grass on the roofs. That's yeah, right. Exactly. And, and you can pull them apart and put them together again quite easily because uh, it's just uh, fr a timber frame of logs. And, and then you put grass on the roof and the house is finished. We're talking with Paul Mark from the Norwegian Museum of Cultural History. 
probably the world's first open air museum. Yeah, we we claim to be that. Of course, our uh, our uh, museum in in Stockholm, Skansen, claims to be it as well. But we were the one, first one to put a house in in an open museum in 1881 uh, and open it for study purposes of study, open it to the public. And Skansen Stockholm came in 1891. Okay, which... you win. <laughs> you win. It's okay. Yeah, we we, we do. We do. What's the one thing, other than the, the, just the physical state of, of the museum, that would surprise most visitors? Uh, I, th- I think what's the, the most remarkable thing is the, the stave church. It's built around 1200, so it's uh, 800 years. And uh, it, came, it comes from the period when uh, Norway was Christianized 1,000 years ago, and people in Norway had no idea about building churches. Some of them had been around Europe and, and seen churches built in stone. Uh, and they had, but traditions in Norway were, were to build in, uh, in wood. So they had to adapt some way of building a church in wood. And they looked to at To make the, it withstand everything, too. Pardon? It has to be able to, to be substantial. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah big. And, and high rising towards, the, towards heaven. So... They looked at the boat sheds and outbuildings, and they said, okay, we can use some of that, those techniques to build a church. And so they, they put their logs, instead of laying them like a timber frame, they put them racing towards the sky and created the stave church. And you still have it? We still have it. It's, Amazing. Yeah. Paul Mark, the, the, the museum is open every day? Yeah, we, we are open all year round, every day, ex- except for Christmas and, and Christmas okay, Day. Okay, we'll give you that day off. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Many of you are familiar with one particular painting of this artist, and it's, it's, it's been in everybody's head. If you've ever studied art, you know it. But here in Oslo... There's an entire museum, and in fact, we're talking thousands of pieces, and it's so big, in fact, they're building even a new museum. It's the Monk Museum, and the director is with us now, Stein Olaf Hendrickson. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. I mean, it's one thing to know the artist by, by one particular work. Yes. Right? And we know the work, don't we? Yeah, I think everybody in the world basically knows this work. It's the Screamer. It's, it's a Scream. I That's call right. him a Screamer. Okay. Right? <laughs> it was stolen, too. Yeah, it was stolen, actually. Uh, there is four uh, editions of this uh, work, uh, in addition to prints and drawings. Where was the thing stolen from? From the Munch Museum once, and from the National Museum uh, another time, yes. And, and in both cases, returned? Both cases returned. At the Munch Museum, it was uh, robbed. It was a robbing with armed oh, really? uh, robbers. So, so it was very difficult to, to 
to prevent that. Uh, and they stole two works, the Madonna and uh, the Scream. And three years later, it was uh, given back okay, to the museum. Okay, I'm going to ask a very stupid question. If I'm going to steal any piece of art, I'm not going to steal the Mona Lisa. I'm not going to steal the Screamer. I'm not going to steal, you know, Rembrandt's Night Watch because what do I do with it? I mean, everybody knows it. No, If you're going to exhibit it, you have to exhibit it secretly, right? I mean, so why would they steal that? Uh, in the case of the Munch Museum, it was to take police attention away from a robbery, a bank robbery on the West Coast. So it was a distraction? It was a distraction. Wow. That's uh, at least a theory, and uh, and it seems to be quite, uh, yeah, that's what we believe. And did they catch the guys in the bank robbery too? Yes, they did, <laughs> eventually. <laughs> a double loser there. <laughs> and, the, and the painting's back. The painting's back. It's uh, fine. It has a little bit, uh, it was a little bit ruined by that uh, robbery. There is some stains on it, but uh, basically it's... Uh, but very, it, it very has well more of a story to tell now. Yeah, that's part of the history of the work of course it so it's okay but let's talk about uh, mr monk himself because it goes way beyond just that one piece of art exactly i mean how many different pieces do you have on display at the museum on display in the museum right now i think we have uh, closer to 100 works uh, and we will have between 100 and maybe 150 works at any time but uh, i would also say that monk was uh, very very active throughout his life he was an artist for more than 60 years he made more than 40,000 artworks and we have 28,000 artworks in our museum so we have a very so big collection. So even though you only have 100 on display your rotating exhibit could take decades. Yes it would take decades. At least yes. <laughs> but then of course we have international activities and we do exhibitions outside of that. Plus you loan out the works to other museums around the world. Yes exactly and collaborate with other museums. For example we have had four or five actually exhibitions in the United States over the last two years. Including the Screamer? Including the Screamer in some cases yes. <laughs> <laughs> Most people don't realize that Mr. Monk died before the war ended in 1944, didn't he? Yeah, that wasn't before the war, actually. Uh, it was during the war. I said uh, before the war ended. Before the war ended. Yes. You're correct. Yeah. Yes, that's right. He, he wrote his testament, uh, gave everything to the city of Oslo in 1940 when the Nazis uh, took Norway. Uh, and then uh, when he died in 1944, the city started to, to let's say, organize this uh, vast uh, collection. It's not only art, actually, because it's another 15,000 museum objects. He's, he's working tools, his lithographic stones, his library. We have a lot of other uh, objects as well. The Nazis, of course, were famous for stealing art and, and shipping it back to Germany. Is that the case with Monk too or no? No, because I think the Germans had, uh, or the Nazis had a very... Uh, difficult sight, uh, difficult uh, relation to Munch. They didn't know exactly what to do with him. He was uh, considered an uh, artist uh, in Germany before the war, so he wasn't uh, uh, approved of. And and when they came to Oslo, Munch was uh, scared, uh, I think. Uh, that he didn't know what they would do to him as an artist or to his works. Uh, but uh, in fact, they let him alone, and, uh, and they also tried to to get him to participate in the Nazi movement, uh, which, uh, of course, uh, Munch uh, uh, denied frequently. And he still lived to tell the story. He, yeah. he lived. Yes, absolutely. Other so, than, yeah, other than the, the Screamer, which, of course, we, we, we would want to go see anyway, just to be able to say we saw it, and not just a print, and not just in a book. Uh, you know, when people go to see, uh, when they go visit the Louvre, you know, they'll stand in line for hours, and then they'll come back out an hour later saying, it's so small, you know, talking about the Mona Lisa. <laughs> What's their reaction to the screamer? Well, I think uh, that's kind of hard to say, because I think also not only to have uh, this on your agenda or your CV, 
it's still very relevant as an artwork. I think it gives people a very very big art experience uh, as many other works of Munch as well. And Munch means a lot to a lot of people all over the world. So they come to the museum to experience him, not only to have him on his list, but, uh, but actually to have the art experience. So I think a lot of people f feel that this work is very relevant today and gives them a lot. But uh, of course, it's also, it's not very big, uh, but we get all kinds of reactions, you know, Confronting art is a lot to do with yourself and how you actually uh, relate to the artist and the art that you are experiencing. So the screamer won't be the surprise to people. What will be the surprise to visitors? I think the surprise is uh, that he's constantly throughout his life experimenting with uh, his works. Uh, and his thematics is very relevant to people all over the world today. He's dealing with uh, how it is to be a human being. He's dealing with the most essential problems that you face as a human being. You have to take your choices in life, and this is something that might help you understand yourself a little better. I think a lot of people experience exactly that, that they find that Munch is giving themselves a better picture of uh, their own uh, challenges and, uh, and their own life. I'm going to ask a stupid question. Did he ever paint anybody happy? Yeah, of course, absolutely. Okay, good. Munch I want to make known sure. for his... Let's say darker subjects. I know, that's why I had to ask exactly, the question. Yeah. With melancholy and jealousy and, and these uh, kind of more difficult moods. But he's also doing a lot of nature, happiness, uh, low relationships, uh, other themes that is also part of life. So he's very, let's say, he's very wide in his approach to, to human beings. And that comes as a surprise to most people because they only remember him for the for the darker stuff. Yeah, and as to your question again, that might be a surprise actually to see that Bunke is not only dealing with with more difficult uh, aspects of life, but also dealing with uh, happiness and, and, and more happy moments. <laughs> Screams of happiness. <laughs> Screams of happiness. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Yes, he's a restaurant and travel blogger, but he's also the founder of the three-year-old Foodie Stories. And his name, Anders Husa, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are now, you? Now, you're from the western part of Norway. Correct. But how long have you been in Oslo? Uh, I've lived here for 10 years now. All right. So, you know, it's, 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 you're the perfect person to talk to because I've been coming to Oslo for 40 years. And every the first time I came, of course, the food scene wasn't a food scene. It didn't exist. Correct. Uh, there were a couple of fish restaurants and you had potatoes and fish and fish and potatoes and sometimes more potatoes and fish. But, <laughs> but now I can't walk 20 feet without seeing another really cool restaurant okay. or a food truck or an ice cream stall or you name it. Now, things are really changed here. You're right. It's exciting. I love uh, I love Norway right now. <laughs> I love Scandinavia right now. Well, you're never at a loss for new material because there's a restaurant opening up all the time. I can't keep up, to be honest. It's my job to keep up, but I can't. I mean, there's too much. But I try my best. <laughs> well, look, you've always been, you know, interested in this. But where do you start? I mean, you know, it's one thing to say you're the founder of, you know, of Foodie Stories. Well, you know, part of travel, of course, is telling stories. Uh, every restaurant's got one if it's a good one, and sometimes they got stories even if they're a bad one. <laughs> but 
I haven't found too many bad restaurants in Oslo. No. Uh, well, there are. Come yeah, on. I know, Every yeah. city have, have bad restaurants. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that really ha- has motiv- motivated me over the years is, is to tell stories where, uh, tell people where to go, tell the stories about the restaurant they should visit. All right. So, uh, so uh, let's start off. We're here in Oslo. <laughs> Let, I mean, let's, let's get into this. Um, you know, where are you going to take me for breakfast? Well, first of all, the breakfast scene in Oslo isn't great uh, as like going out for eating in the morning. Because it's not a typical thing of Norwegians to do. But it's a big city for coffee. It is, correct. Uh, so and yes, they have Starbucks, but you don't have to go to Starbucks, <laughs> you right? You don't. Don't. Please don't. Okay. <laughs> Where do you recommend for coffee? Well, there, there are many options, but I would definitely take you to, uh, to uh, Tim Mandelbo, which is the uh, main coffee institution in Oslo. Uh, Tim Mandelbo started many, many years ago. He was uh, the world barista champion, uh, but he's also a big international name in the coffee scene. Okay, that's breakfast, right? Coffee. Yeah, you go for a black coffee or milk if you want, but preferably black. But that's also preparing you for lunch. It is. Builds your appetite up. For lunch, uh, there are many options, although even, even the lunch scene in Oslo isn't the biggest because, again, you have this, this culture thing where people bring their lunch to work. Uh, so lunch restaurants are struggling a little bit, but luckily we do have some good ones. Uh, one of my favorites is a place called uh, Centralen, uh, which is, uh, I guess you would say, a Norwegian brasserie. Okay. Uh, they do quite r- rustic food. Um, so what am I going to eat there? Well, they have a signature dish that I love that you must try if you go there. It's a red beet tartare, smoked red beets. With a, I think it's an estragon, uh, tarragon, sorry, uh, tarragon mayo, uh, and horseradish and an egg yolk. So it's a, it's a classic tartare, but it's no meat, which is m- very much. That's pretty in, cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah, because when I first heard about it, I thought you were saying, what, beef tartare? No, it's beets, beets tartare. Yes. Wow. All right, so there's one. The smoked fish here is still amazing. It is. It's one of our uh, specialties. I know. I know. Smoked fish, dried fish, solid fish, whatever way we could preserve fish. And look, I'm, I, I admit this, I'm a, I'm a herring nut. So you give me some great herring, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, we got lots of them. I know you do. <laughs> All right, so Centralin for the, for the lunch with that famous beets tartare. What about dinner? Because, you know, I just walking around the harbor area last night, there are two or three places that, I, that I've been to before, one that they've redone. Uh, a big fish restaurant right there on the, on, on, uh, starts with an L. Uh, Lofoten? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the one. Right. I mean, I love it. And it was jammed. Yeah, I can uh, imagine. I mean, jammed. Yeah. All right, so where else do you want to take me for dinner? Well, again, uh, there are usually many options for dinner in Oslo. Right now we're in the summer season. That limits it a little bit. Uh, every year I make this map for my readers so they can navigate Oslo even though like 70% of restaurants are closed. So in well, you, well, you're giving them a map to places that are closed? No, the know? places that are open. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, so that, that's, I, th- I think many people find that helpful because the, the options are limited. One of my favorites, especially now in the summertime because it's open, is a place called Bass. It's right in my neighborhood. That's uh, B-A-S-S. B-A-S-S, correct. Yeah. Uh, they have simple dishes. Uh, great wine list, lots of natural wines, but also more conventional ones. Um, lovely food. And the tartare that they do there is, again, a lot of vegetables. Again, a lot of vegetables. They do have a famous tartare. It's called a tartaco. So it's a tartare tasting like taco. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, they're doing turnips? 
Yeah, there's a great dish right now on the menu, uh, a turnip uh, dish. Uh, it comes with the dill oil and some uh, stockfish mayo, and also I think some crispy stockfish on top. I just had it. Wonderful dish. All right, so I got to ask the question for my audience, and please don't get insulted. What's the best cheeseburger in Oslo? Well, last year I did a complete test of all restaurants serving uh, cheeseburgers in Oslo. <laughs> so not only the burger joints, but also the best restaurants serving right. one. But we had some criteria, so it had to be like a handhold burger, not this fancy. No, you've got to put it in your mouth. Yeah, yeah, your yeah, hands. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we found, and the, the jury was, you know, we agreed. Uh, the best one is a place called St. Lars. Uh, it's, a, it's a grill restaurant, so they know how to grill stuff. Uh, it's located at Bislett, in the Bislett district of Oslo. Best cheeseburger in town, no doubt. Best bread, best, you know, patty. So much flavor in it. So that was hands down? Hands down. Okay. Hands down. Now, because there's so much seafood on the menu here, and because of the foodie explosion, you got to talk about sushi. Yeah. So, best sushi in town? Well, um, I have my favorite, yes. for sure. It's a place called Umakasa. It opened up not too long ago. Uh, actually, it started in uh, in my uh, in the area where, uh, where I was born. Uh, they they opened up there first. They got the Michelin star after two years. Uh, it was kind of uh, quite different for for a Norwegian restaurant to get a Michelin star for sushi. Uh, and then they opened up in Oslo. Uh, another chef, but still the same concept. Lovely place serving umakase style sushi. So now, you know, we talk about Michelin star. We know the, the history of the Michelin star in Denmark, in Copenhagen, that restaurant, right? Yeah. Right, Noma. Noma. Right. What about here in Oslo? Well, we have... Is it Memo? It's Mamo. Mamo, yeah. yeah. Our, like, star, star restaurant is Mamo. Three Michelin stars. Quite a few... Three. Yeah, three. So quite a few inches above the rest. <laughs> what makes it that special? Many things. Um... The location to start... It's a Danish chef. It's a Danish chef, correct. Which, I mean, is kind of odd, but at the same time, why not? Why, why yeah. shouldn't a Danish chef come here and sh sort of reinvent the, the Norwegian uh, cuisine? Which is what he did, basically. He, he took the old Norwegian traditions, the old flavors, and he made it contemporary. And he presented it in a, in a totally different way. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly, let's fly away. My next guest, a true American expat uh, from Livermore, California, uh, a city I actually know, uh, and uh, the author of, or the co-author of The Startup Guide to Oslo, mm -hmm. uh, Audrey Camp. How are you? I'm really good. It's good to be here. An American from California living in Oslo with her husband. Why? That's a good question because neither of us are related to anyone Norwegian, and so that makes us kind of rare. But we came here just in search of adventure and fun back in 2011. We'd been married a few years and come from the same hometown and thought, let's try someplace abroad, and we picked Oslo. So basically, you're the rebels of, of Livermore because your friends and family think you're nuts. They do, and regularly ask us when we're coming home. And you tell them? We tell them we have carved out a pretty great life for ourselves over here. It's a perfect place to raise a family. We've since had our daughter. And it's a wonderful place to work. We both are professionals here. So we have a really good network, good jobs, and a good place to raise our kids. So sooner or later, all your friends are going to now visit you. They've been visiting from the very beginning. I mean, Norway is amazingly beautiful anyway. And Oslo is sort of an up-and-coming world capital. 
hustle. It's sort of under people's radar. And then they get here and realize how much fun there's stuff there is to do. Okay. You say it's up and coming and under the radar. Mm. Now, relative to when I first came here, it's booming. Yes. <laughs> but in your terms, it's still up and coming. Well, I mean, it's not Paris or London yet, but uh, we're getting there. We, For example, the startup scene, which I was uh, have been immersed in for a while now, um, there was almost nothing here for entrepreneurs back in uh, just five or six years ago. But today, there are an incredible amount of co-working spaces and lots of thriving startups. So it's really um, coming along with a younger generation. And considering the Norwegians' uh, talent for design, the mm. startup workspaces are, are probably cutting edge as well. They're remarkable, and they're all different kinds. There's a startup lab, which is for tech companies, and that's uh, out near the university. But there's also places like 657, which are for artistic and, uh, and creative design places. And it's been really fun to see different houses springing up around the city for these different disciplines. See, I'm one of those old school guys who still has an office. Mm. I like my office. Offices are great. I know. I work in one now, too. Well, good. We have something in common. Yes. <laughs> but what I notice about Oslo, uh, based on when I first came here 40 years ago, mm. uh, is when I came here 40 years ago, it was sleepy. Mm -hmm. It was um, very, well, everything you saw was expected. Right? The food is expected. You didn't have much choice. Yeah. Uh, you had fish and fish. Um, and only one kind of fish, maybe. <laughs> Occasionally a potato. Uh, no, they had a lot, they were throwing potatoes in. They were. <laughs> that, they, you know why they were throwing the potatoes in? Hmm. To kind of hide the fish. <laughs> <laughs> now, oh my God, hmm. it's just, it's a food scene. That's true. But everywhere in the world is a food scene now. Yeah. Do you know one place in the world that's not? Maybe Pyongyang. But, but other than that... I'm running out of places. And I'm afraid of insulting anybody in uh, any region in the United States, so I won't say a word. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say maybe Tallahassee. Oh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Although I will say, walking along Oslo's Harbor last night, I saw TGI Fridays, which kind of made me depressed. Well, yes, and they have expanded. There are so many um, locations for them now. But there's also a Johnny Rockets, and I'm, I'm wondering how they're going to compete because TGIF seems to have the corner on the quote-unquote American well, diner scene. Well, truth be told, Johnny Rockets is a pretty mean strawberry milkshake. Okay. Well, we but, like milkshakes. Uh, but I'm not a meat eater, so I, I can't comment on the cheeseburgers anymore. But at least the strawberry milkshakes are holding their own. The nice thing here is that uh, Johnny Rockets and TGIF have a com a com competition from the Nighthawk Diner, which is a wonderful restaurant uh, over in my area in Gronalurka, which is uh, on the east side. And they've been there a long time, but they're American diner food, and they also do a killer milkshake. They're American diner food, but they're Norwegian. Uh, they, I think that past owners have been American, but I'm not sure who's uh, in charge now. <laughs> they understood what uh, you know Angus beef was. All right, but when you first came to Oslo with your husband, yes. I mean, it was a brave new world for you. It was. And uh, again, without any help entering the society, really, we were just jumping in. But but uh, we really quickly found our people. I mean, you didn't speak the language. No. Uh, and, I, I mean, I'm surprised not anymore about how many people speak English here. But the point oh, is, yes. oh, yeah, but it's still a different culture. It is. I would say it's one of the friendliest expat scenes I've ever seen because um, people can come here and immediately assimilate to the culture a bit um, because they don't need to speak the language right away. So they get to know cultural norms and, and have access to insight from locals in English. Um, so you actually get to adjust faster because you're not required to learn the language. All right. So what was the biggest cultural shock for you when you got here? The biggest cultural shock was actually a, really quickly about um, families and, and the way that families are structured here and the way that society supports them. Um, when my husband moved over here, it was February, and he was here 10 weeks before I was, and he gave me a phone call and said, honey, I think, you know, I'm at this cafe, and I, I think this guy next to me who has his laptop out 
left his baby outside in the cold. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, he left his, his baby carriage outside and there's a baby in it and it's, it's below freezing outside. And we were both panicking and he's like, what can we do? Well, here it's actually quite normal because the, the, the prams, the barnacle are actually built and designed to withstand cold. People regularly put their babies into the baby carriages and leave them out in, in the cold weather to have the cold air, the cold so that they can breathe. And the people just park their sleeping children outside the cafe and come in for a cup of coffee. And that happens all the time. Now, you have a young daughter? I do. She's three. Does she sleep outside, too? She would not do it for us. But uh, a lot of kids, most kids here actually can sleep in their, in their prams outside of Barnahaga, which is the kindergarten system here, or outside of restaurants. And so we see all the parents out there enjoying that luxury. So this is not child abandonment. It's just what people do. It's a cultural thing. And people can park their kids and be able to go in and have a lunch while their children are sleeping outside. And that was a huge cultural surprise to us. Well, what that means is you go to a restaurant and there are no screaming kids inside. It's it's beautiful. <laughs> Good old Norway. What was the second cultural shock for you? Um, it also goes along with that, um, just seeing how many men uh, of my age, so that's you know mid-30s, how many men were out with infants in the parks and, uh, and playing with their infant children and taking them out for walks in the middle of the day. We didn't understand at first. We were like, what are all of these men doing out taking care of children? Because in the U.S. it still really is primary caregiver, usually the mother. Yeah. And so we saw this and we really had to have it explained to us. But the reality here is that society supports as much gender equality as possible in childcare, and they give parental permission or parental leave to both parents that's paid, and they're required to take it. So men have at least 10 weeks with their children at some point straight through wow. um, leaving work, and it's it's a beautiful thing. My, my husband got to take five months, and he's became the most competent parent and has a wonderful bond with our daughter because of it. So that was ended up being a very happy thing for us, a surprise and we took advantage of. that would never have happened in the United States. <laughs> Not at all. Um, not, not so when all of your newfound friends and long-lost family members visit you here in Oslo, where do you take them? So the very first place that I take them is down to the water to see it. But then my favorite place to take them after that is actually slightly outside the city. I have us get onto the number one metro and take it to the end to a place called Frogner Setren. And it translates to the summer pasture at Frogner. And so you go up to this place. It's at the very end of that metro line. And it's above the city. It's probably half an hour ride. And when you step out, you have an incredible vista over the entire city in the fjord. And there's a wonderful restaurant up there from the turn of the last century. There's a fancy, fancy restaurant, but there's also just a, a cafeteria-style where they serve wonderful quiche and uh, and uh, rumagrit, which is very Norwegian. It's like a sour cream porridge. And you can go up there, and there are these picture windows, and you can sit inside in the winter and outside on the patio in the summer and just enjoy um, how the access that locals in Oslo have to nature and to how beautiful the countryside is. You know, there's a, my philosophy when people ask me, you know, oh, where's your favorite place in the world? Mm. I give them an answer, and it's, it's true. It, it always surprises them because I say, my metric for what I think is my favorite place in the world is where I sleep the best hmm. and where I sleep the best of course is where I think the best where I create the best where I love the best all those things come into, and where I really feel the best right mm -hmm. and it's all about the air yeah I sleep the best in Fire Island in New York where, where I grew up in, in the summers with my parents I sleep the best in Southwest Ireland hmm. I sleep the best in Norway yeah because of the air it's so clean and, and so it's one thing to say you're going to take them up there for lunch 
they're going to fall asleep because <laughs> it's they're not used to that air. Yeah. It's not the altitude, it's the quality of the air. It's very clean. And it, it you don't as a Californian, you know, we deal with smog, et cetera. Really? Um, you think so? Mm, yeah. We come out here and mm. it's just gone. And uh, we find that Norwegians sometimes struggle with the concept of smog. Um, I had recently had a, a friend of mine, a Norwegian friend, who was in Los Angeles and he was talking about how beautiful the light was for taking photographs because there's this incredible filter in the air. <laughs> it's called smog. And I said, <laughs> I said sir, it's called smog. <laughs> so I said, well, he's a photographer. I said, go to work there and then come back and live here because you'll live longer. <laughs> That's true. You, know, you mentioned one thing about taking your friends up there. It's the public transportation system here yeah. that I think is just remarkable. It really is. It's clean. It's fast. It's safe. Um, it it's gets efficient. all over the city. You can get anywhere in the city on public transit. And everyone uses it, too. So it's not like you're the but only people just, on that it's bus. It's not just within the city. It's within Norway. Incredible uh, incredible radius um, with the, the Tabon or metro system here. It gets you into all of the suburbs around Oslo. And then also the trains. Um, one Beautiful train rides. World famous train rides across the country. Um, from here to Bergen, in particular, is a gorgeous train ride. And from here to Bergen, you mean? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's so it's it's a direct shot and it's it's several hours, but the, the terrain outside the windows changes dramatically as you go. Every hour looks like a different view. Of course, one of the shocks coming here, of course, is sticker shock because Norway is not exactly an expensive country. No, in fact, it's routinely, especially also ranked as one of the most expensive in the world. Um, however, I will say that uh, you adjust to that fairly quickly when you're here. And one of the reasons is that um, because there's such a, a high tax on everything, um, when you realize what that tax is being used for when you realize that value-added tax is going toward making sure that people have a living wage even when they're in service industry um, then that that level of dignity that you're paying for for other people really strikes you quickly I, I have no problem paying the, the prices here I see the benefit should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat free of charge and to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. In the interest of full disclosure, I came to this hotel about four years ago, which is about a year after it opened. I was blown away by it then. I'm blown away by it now. Uh, and one of the reasons is my experience with Oslo hotels was that they were very Spartan, uh, they were very bland. Uh, the food choices were not exactly exciting. Um, and they were just places where you slept. Uh, this hotel really represented a quantum change in the approach of, of, of the hotel business and in hospitality in the capital city of Norway. And uh, at the time, I met someone here who was the guest relations manager. His name is Dominic Gorham. Um, and uh, who basically, by the time I met him, and the hotel was only opened a year, everybody wanted to stay here. Rolling Stones, uh, U2, I mean, every, every band that showed up on, in, in concert in Scandinavia found their way to The Thief, and for good reason. I got him to come on the show today. Dominic, how are you? Good morning. Very well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, nice to see you here. Uh, I haven't seen you in about a couple of years. That's correct, yeah. Uh, and your hair is just as long. <laughs> it's getting longer. <laughs> no, it's impossible. It's it impossible. Give me an idea of the just the philosophy of this hotel, because it so goes against the stereotype Norwegian hotel. Yeah, totally. We saw that there was a there was a, um, a gap in the market. There was a, a space for a hotel of this type. And, and I just want to say, this is not a hotel trying to be cool for the sake of being cool or style for the sake of style, because style without substance doesn't get me excited in any way, shape, or form. Mm. So when you say there was a gap, you still had to fill the gap by, by, by providing substance, too. That's correct. But we saw that there was an international market 
market that was not being catered for. We had international travellers coming to the city, uh, adoring Norway, adoring Oslo, but maybe not finding the type of hotel that they were used to whilst travelling in other cities in Europe. And we decided to do something about that, and that's when The Thief uh, was, was, uh, was put together as a project. And the derivation of the word The Thief? We are in an area called Schuvholmen. If I translate literally from Norwegian to English, it means thief inlet or thief island. So if I was to paint the pretty picture, the pirates of the Caribbean sailed the seven seas. When Johnny Depp sailed his, his boat into the Oslo Fjord, this is where he parked his boat. And it's a true story, apart from not being Johnny Depp, of course. But the pirates lived here. The pirates hung out in this area where you find pirates, you find prostitution, corporal capital punishment. It all went down in this area. And pirates are basically floating thieves. So we, <laughs> the area was called Schuvholmen. So basically, if you're looking for prostitutes and, and, and getting ripped <laughs> off by thieves, have I found a hotel? No. But I mean, in terms of, of its historical nature... It's a, historical nature it, yeah. it is a true story we were up against great properties in this city who have history there are other properties in the city with great locations they have ibsen they have munk they have quintessential sort of norwegian elements about them that we didn't have this is a new area a new district it's, it's man-made it's built it's an, we're living on an island here and we had to find a sense of belonging and a sense of identity and tapping into the history of the area was essential to us in fact the name of this hotel has been an absolute godsend why? Because it's given us a freedom. The first thing you realize when you arrive at the thief is we have a sense of humor. We have to do with a name like that. And that opens up many, many doors. We have a sense of informality here, which I, I, I harp on about, and I do a lot of presentations about the future of service. I believe informality is the future of service. And we have a sense of informality here, and our name was a, was a, found, was a foundation for that. So basically, we're in a den among thieves? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I wake up in the morning, I write to the thieves. Morning thieves, this is the staff who work here. We are thieves, we specialize in thievery. I mean, it's... it's, 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 it's uh, now, most hotels that specialize in thievery rip you off in the minibar. <laughs> I just we thought I'd mention that. We don't do that. We, we tend not to rip you off, but we are, we are a very unique... Uh, product and a unique concept and a very unique uh, uh, we have a unique sense of, of approach to, to the work and to our work ethic and to our dynamic at the hotel you mentioned the sense of humor uh, half of the artwork here has a sense of humor without a doubt without a doubt but that's down to our affiliation we are patrons of the Astrophony Museum which is a beautiful museum which is adjacent to the property and we have our owners private collection on the property in fact we have the highest insurance in the world concerning hotel art well, most hotel art are four dogs, four dogs playing poker, <laughs> and really bad. No, we go you know, from Jeff Koons, yeah. Julian Opie, Damien Hurst, Sir Peter Blake. I mean, it just goes on and on. This place is a treasure trove. It really is. When people walk in here, what's the biggest surprise to them? The informality. Straight away, they sense it. They sense that we do things differently here. We don't have a doorman, for example. A hotel at this level anywhere else in Europe, I guarantee, would have a doorman. We don't have a doorman. Because? It's, it, we felt that the doorman was of another barrier. We have what we call natural filters, which is our location, our style, and our price. Those things filter people naturally. We wanted to have a sense of uh, an, an, open, an open door, a sense, of, uh, a sense of freedom here, and a sense that everyone was welcome here. Regardless if you could wanted to stay here, when you want to spend money here, just to visit here. As I said, the artwork is for people to, to, to visit and to see. And we wanted to make sure that people felt that the door was open. So we placed ourselves strategically in the property. We have certain ways of working, certain terminology we use inside the property, just to make people feel that this belongs to them as well. 
Attention thieves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get me going on that word. Uh-huh. Dominic Gorham, the guest relations manager right here at The Thief in Oslo. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. It's very nice to have you here. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.